This weekly broadcast is presented to you by Cornerstone Bible Center, located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you subscribe to this podcast, please send us an email at in-depth-bible-teaching at yahoo.com. And now, here's our teacher, Alex Del Percio. Creating, he said that he would call the light day and the darkness night, and then it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Or the Hebrew word for day is, is yom. I'll write that here. And kippur, as you're going through Leviticus, means, that's the Hebrew word for atonement. Or day of atonement. When they, when they celebrate Yom Kippur, uh, that's their day of atonement. Now I'll turn to chapter 16 in Leviticus. Uh, I was, wasn't going to teach on this because I felt that we looked at certain things <clears throat> before in the book related to the sacrifices. Uh, but as I was reading this, I saw some things that I thought were, were pretty good. Now let me just give you the basic outline, if you will, a summary uh, of the chapter. First, you have the Lord telling Aaron he needs to bring a bullock for a sin offering, and then a ram for a burnt offering, and then two goats, one would be offered for the, uh, before the Lord for a sin offering, and then the other goat uh, would be released. So that's, and there's more than that in the chapter, but that's the basic summary uh, of what we're going to see here in this chapter. Now, can I have a volunteer to read? Somebody who can read nice and loud. Can you read real loud from back there? Okay, in, in one minute. I want to read a, a verse, actually two verses from Numbers, because we're going to start off with something here. This is Numbers 7, 89, or 88 and 89. And all the oxen for the sacrifice of the peace offerings were 20 and 4 bullocks, or 24 bullocks. The rams, 60. The he goats, 60. The lambs of the first year, 60. This was the dedication of the altar after that it was anointed. And when Moses had gone into the tabernacle of the congregation to speak with him, meaning God, then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him from off the mercy seat that was upon the ark of testimony from between the two cherubim, and he spoke unto him. Now the mercy seat was the place. Now remember before this, Moses went up to the mountain, and God would speak to him there. Now he instructs him to build a tabernacle, and now God is going to meet the high priest, or um, in that case Moses at, at first, but, but um, in 16 it will be the, the high priest, Aaron, and he's going to speak to him or communicate to him or appear to him from the mercy seat. This is the place now of meeting with God. Now in chapter 16, we're going to read these verses uh, 
Good. Read verses 1 through 10. Okay, verse 2. Uh, God says that Aaron should not come into the holy, pa- holy place whenever he chooses. So the first few verses there uh, basically are related to what happened with Nadab and Abihu, who without authority come in and intrude into the holy place to offer incense and, and whatever. And you know the story how they were struck dead. Because of that incident, God decides, I believe, that he needs to give them further instructions and, and to bring some things out uh, to clarify what he wants done here in the, this instance, dealing with the annual Day of Atonement or uh, Yom Kippur. Uh, so the instructions here were defined that, they, that, that Aaron was not to come when he chose into the Holy of Holies because of the death of his two sons. Now, I want to look at something here. In verse 2, it mentions the mercy seat twice. And uh, I want to look at something else here. Mercy seat was the covering over the Ark of the Testimony. That word also meant to cover sin, and it also means (laughs) propitiatory. Okay, or the place of atonement for sin. Now, there's a scripture in Romans. If you want to turn there, you can. It's Romans 3.25. And I have it here in my notes. I'll read it. Whom God hath set forth. Now, he's talking. Paul is speaking about what God did through Christ and the offering of Christ himself uh, as, as a propitiation. It says here, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. The literal meaning of the word propitiation in Romans is an atoning victim. Now, the question comes or arises in people's minds, some people's minds, did Christ cover because of the word here that's used, sin, or did he actually take it away, do, do away with it? And I want to show you some verses in the New Testament related to this because, you know, I have heard this many, many times. Matter of fact, I heard it about two weeks ago on the radio where a fellow was talking about the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that is true, but yet it's not true. It's one of those terms that you can use if you know what what you're talking about. Now... um, the word here, mercy seat, okay, is referring to the place of atonement in chapter 16 we're talking about. Now, turn to, to Hebrews. I want to read a couple verses. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 5. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak Particularly, now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Verse 11 now is going to talk about Jesus. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, 
uh, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Now, the words in Romans 3.25 and also in 1 John, you will see the word propitiation used, that must tie directly into the Levitical sacrifices. Paul was a Jew, and if you read Romans, you will see in some of the chapters, like chapter 9 and chapter 10, he, he sees this thing here with the Gentiles and with the Jews, and he talks quite a bit about it. Paul, who was a Jew, knew very well what he was saying. So when he is using the word propitiation, the very phraseology that he is using is going to tie what he's saying back in for the Jews into what the Levitical sacrifices did, back into the, this annual day of atonement where the blood of the bull or the goat was sprinkled upon the mercy seat for a, a covering for the people back then. So he's tying, using the, the phrase propitiation, he's tying that into what had gone on before. But Paul also goes on and says things re, that are related to Jesus and Jesus uh, performing the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. Now in Ephesians 1.7 it says this, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. The word redemption or the, the word redeemed means to pay the price for others, to totally pay what is, is needed, totally, once. Okay? Now, secondly, the mercy seat, you have to remember, was a pattern of the heavenly. So in Hebrews, let's go back to Hebrews 8. Jesus fulfilled the heavenly pattern. In Hebrews 8, verse 4. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve an example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, meaning God, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. So there was a, a heavenly type, a heavenly pattern here. I want to read this from the Amplified. For if he were still living on earth, he would not be a priest at all, for there are already priests who offer uh, the gifts in accordance with the law. But these offer service merely as a pattern and as a foreshadowing of what has its true existence and reality in the heavenly sanctuary. For when Moses was about to erect a tabernacle, he was warned by God, saying, See to it that you may make everything exactly according to the copy or the model which was shown you in the mount. So, so Paul uses this word here, and he ties that into the mercy seat. But remember that there's also a heavenly pattern now that most likely those in the wilderness did not see other than Moses and, and a few others. 
that, that God had set, set forth and set out there so that whenever the priest did such and such, you know, according to the tradition, that was going to speak and be patterned after Christ and the heavenly pattern that God had, had set up. So the blood here in, in Leviticus 16, stay in Hebrews here for a minute, the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in Leviticus. In the New Testament, Jesus' blood was sprinkled on the heavenly mercy seat. Now, don't ask me what that is, but that, that's what Scripture says. There's some pattern in the heavenly that, that Jesus, by his death and, and his blood, has fulfilled that pattern. Now, in Hebrews 9.14... It says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. In other words, there is no free pardon without the shedding of blood, the blood of Christ. Now, if Jesus only atoned and covered our sins then there would be the need for another sacrifice. That is why they sacrificed time and time again in the Old Testament, because the blood and bulls of goats would cover their sin. But Jesus came, and he died, and his blood now was offered one time, not to cover, but also to take away the sins or forgive the sins of the world. Hebrews 10, verse 10. By the which we will, we are sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. See, he, he did that one time, and that was enough to, to take away the sins of the world. Verse 11. And every piece... Priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That word take away means to take away altogether. So they offered these sacrifices, but they could not take away the sin of man altogether. Verse 12. But this man, meaning Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, forever, sat down on the right hand of God. John the Baptist, who was a prophet, sees Jesus, and the Spirit of God opens his eyes. Because remember, before that time, this was not a teaching that John the Baptist got from the synagogue or any, any other place. When he sees Jesus, the Spirit of God is upon him, and he says... Behold the Lamb of God, and the Lamb you know ties into the Levitical sacrifices, John being a Jew, and when he says the Lamb of God, that is related to the Levitical sacrifices that they did. Behold the Lamb of God, now he's going to say something different that was revealed to him by the Spirit. He says, that taketh away the sins of the world, and that means actually take upon yourself 
and take them out of the way or to carry them out of the way. So, so that's what Jesus did. He took the sins of the world and he took them out of the way. Now go back to Leviticus 16. Now I want to give you the, the basic breakdown here in this chapter. Um, chapter 1, verse 1, I mean chapter 16, verse 1 through 14 is the preparation and the atonement for the priest. Very necessary. Aaron just cannot go into the Holy of Holies. There is a preparation there that must take place in his life or else he's a dead man. Now in verse 6, two verses I want to read here. And I thought this was, was very interesting because it says in the New Testament that we don't live unto ourselves. I believe that's in the New Testament. You know, sometimes we think that we are an island. We live, you know, what we do doesn't affect someone else and so on. Uh, verse 6, And Aaron shall offer his bullock of a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. Uh, verse 11, And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. So, so he has to do this, first of all, for himself and his family. So that when God looks at Aaron, he's just not seeing Aaron, if you, if you will. He's seeing him and his household, those that are in this close proximity, living together, that have an influence on one another. He's saying, now, just not an offering for yourself, but also for those in your household. Because that's, you know, that, that, all that whole thing right there affects you. You know, be it good, in a good way or not. Uh, you see this in, in Paul's writing to Timothy. I'll, I'll read this. 1 Timothy 4.16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing, uh, doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So Paul says to Timothy, first of all, you need to take heed to the doctrine, take heed to yourself. Okay, that's the first order. Because that will help bring salvation to others. So how you as a Christian walk, how you live, first of all, one-on-one, -on -one, you and God, is important. Don't expect your kids or your family or everybody else to serve God and, and walk the right way and do everything right without looking at yourself first. We're easy, it's very easy. We're quick to do that, to you know, want everybody to do what we want. But what about us? So, so first of all, it's important that we walk correctly, and that will help other people. That's how you influence. That's actually what it means uh, to be a fisher of men. You know, everybody quotes this, I will make you fishers of men. But if you read Mark, Mark says, 
I will make you to become, very important word, become fishers of men. So, so become is the making part. That's the important part before you can be a fisher of men. So taking heed unto yourself, Aaron, is going to help you now to help other people. He cannot go in uh, to the Holy of Holies and, and do the proper sacrifices if first he does not uh, kill the bullock for himself and, and, and his household. See, that's, that's the order here. In Acts it says this, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock of God. See, so you see the same order again. It has to be that way. Now, by the way, that's not a self-centered thing. Now, back in 16, the second thing here is seen in, from verse 15 through 19, and that is the preparation or the atonement for the place. Verse 16, and he shall make an atonement, this is Aaron, for the holy place. So why would he have to make an atonement for the holy place? Isn't the holy place holy? You would think. God set it all up, right? Do you know that the holy place wasn't holy? It wasn't. Do you know why the holy place wasn't holy? Okay, let's read. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall ye do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So even the holy place had to be atoned for um, he had to, to have this atonement or covering over the entire tabernacle. Why? Because of the pollution of man. Because of the sin and pollution of sin in the Israelites, their very walking in with the sacrifice into the outer court polluted it. And I thought to myself, Lord... When I come to church, am I polluting the sanctuary? Or have you worked in my life, and have you worked in my heart, and have you taken away the sins of this week, and, or maybe this day, so that when I come in into the sanctuary, I do not pollute it? And I think, I think sometimes in church, the Lord has to move by His Spirit for a while to clean up the tabernacle, to atone, to take certain things away, before we're even ready to meet with Him. And I'm not talking about praising God and hallelujah, Jesus. No, I'm talking about meeting with Him. See, we do not really understand and don't have a picture of the holiness of God. Let me read a couple verses. Exodus 28, 36, and we looked at this before. And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold and engrave it like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord on the forehead. Well, it's just words. 
Exodus 15, 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness? The word holiness means apart or apartness. God is so far apart from us that we don't even realize it. Unless we are moving in holiness in our life, unless that becomes to some degree what God is working in us, we're not going to approach unto God. I can understand why uh, in the New Testament, I think it's Paul that says that our, our no, maybe it's the Old Testament, whatever, that our um, righteousness is as filthy rags. Let me read something from the Amplified. You know, we think we're just going to run into church and we're just going to meet with God. Well, I got news for you. There is some preparation in the heart and in the place. Who alone has immortality in the sense of exemption from every kind of death and lives in an unapproachable light? whom no man has ever seen or can see, unto him be honor and everlasting power and dominion. Amen, Paul says. Revelation 4. And before the throne there was a sea, a sea of glass unto, like unto crystal, crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like unto a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the, and the third beast had a face as of a man, and the fourth, fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them seven wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. Now, are these beasts or these beings here are these sinful beings? No. Or, or they're not going to be where they are. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give, give glory and honor, and no thanks to him that, that sat on on the throne who liveth forever and ever, uh, the, f the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are created. These beasts... When they see the Lord, they cry, holy, holy, holy. And the four and twenty elders fall down and worship Him. And we think that our physical worship with our mouth and with our hands is something. If we had a picture of the holiness of God, we would be groveling in the dirt. We would have our face Buried in the carpet here, if the holiness of God came. But we are so much uh, removed from that many times, 
that we just stroll in and there's no big deal. But remember, without the anointing or without the sacrifice to prepare the place, there's really no meeting with God the way he really wants, in the manner that he wants. Leviticus 11.44 says this, For I am the Lord your God, ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Now the basis for their holiness there in that verse is the obedience to what he has told them in chapter 11 with the animals. That, that, that becomes the basis, the, the, the bedrock for them to build upon to be holy like he's telling them. Um, Hebrews 12 14, you don't have to turn there. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are on the face of the earth. And the basis for them being a special people is seen in verses 3 through 5, right before this, and that, again, is their obedience. So unless there's obedience in our life, we're not moving toward God. We're not moving toward uh, holiness, like he says we are to be the special people. Now, the third thing in chapter 16 is from verse 20 through 28, and that is the atonement... We're the people. I see all, when I read the scriptures, it's like I see these, I don't know, I see all these patterns. I mean, like I could just see them the way God has set them up. And it's just, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's just wonderful. Leviticus 16, verse 33. Now, we're going to see the atonement for the people. Now, remember... I have always thought, um, well, I'll throw this in there too. When it says that, that, the, that, he would, uh, um, that God would appear in the cloud on the mercy seat, I always thought that meant the cloud, you know, like the pillar of cloud. But it doesn't mean that. It's talking about the cloud of incense that the high priest had to bring in there with him and, and uh, burn. The second thing here is that the people were going to have to be atoned for. And I always thought that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year. Well, that's true. He goes in once, in, once a year in this setup. But he actually, I, I believe from when I, I read this chapter, I'm telling you, probably five times at least. And I read it in several different translations. But still, you know, some things aren't real clear. And I believe this is what took place, that he brought the, the, the bullock, killed the bullock, and took the blood, and, the, and the, uh, maybe not the incense at that time, but he took the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled it seven times on the mercy seat, before the mercy seat. And then he goes out, and he's going to kill the goat. He's bringing the two goats now. He kills the goat, takes the blood, 
goes back in, and now he's going to, I believe, maybe he lit the incense, incense before, one of the two times, but he, he lights the incense, and then he does the same thing with the blood of the goat as he did with the bullock. The bullock was for a sin offering, and then there's another offering there, a uh, burnt offering, and then you have the goat also for the sin offering. Now, in, in verse 33, it kind of summarizes this here that I... Um, wrote on the board. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and that's the place. And he shall make an atonement for the, uh, for the tabernacle of the congregation, remember, because it's polluted, and for the altar. And he shall make an atonement for the priests and for the people of the congregation. Now let's read two verses here. Verse 20. Or three verses. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place, that means to cover, by the way, and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat. When I read this, I just said to stop. And confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. See, do I have that? Let me read this from the Amplified. I don't know if it's going to say what I read in one translation. 16. It's at verse 21. Okay. Bear with me here. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of, of Israel and all the transgression. One translation said all their rebellion. And here's an, I'll throw this out too for you, then I'll get back to this. How many have ever heard this expression, yada, yada, yada? People say that? You know that's Hebrew? You know what it means? It's right in that verse. It means to confess. People say stuff, they don't know what they're saying. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess, yada, over, over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel. <laughs> Aaron, how long is it going to take for you to confess all the sins of the children of Israel? Well, just take a small church. How long would it take if we came up here and confessed all our sins over top of the head of a live goat here? Might take a long time. Aaron, how long is it going to take? Well, it's going to take as long as it takes. Talk about a long prayer. He's confessing sin after sin after sin. All the things that he has perceived and saw. Uh, remember, people were bringing their sacrifices throughout the year. And this is a sacrifice for this particular thing or that particular thing. Aaron sees and knows some of them. He's confessing or he's saying yada over this goat, placing his hands upon it. So that now 
this goat is going to, there's going to be two things happening here. One goat is going to be killed, and the other goat is, is the scapegoat is going to be released into the wilderness. And there's a parallel here to what I taught last week with the offering of the two birds, where the one bird was killed over an earthen vessel with water in it, and his blood was drained in there. Then the other bird was taken along with um, the cedar and the hyssop, and he dips the bird's head along with the hyssop into that blood. See, that was us. The first bird was Jesus Christ, who died and shed his blood. And the second bird was a type of, of, of us, you know. We have the blood of Christ applied to our head, so to speak. And here you have the same thing where the goat, the first goat who the lot was drawn for the Lord is brought in and Aaron is going to kill that goat as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And the, the, the scapegoat, there's two meanings for the scapegoat. One would be that he escapes the death because of the death of the other. So we are like the scapegoat that's released, and we escape the death that we should pay with our own blood because of our sin, because of the death of the first goat, the, the, of the death of Christ. And then the second meaning for the scapegoat, the typology, would be that Jesus Christ just like we talked about with the propitiation in the mercy seat, the sins were laid upon him, and he carried them away. There he goes with your sin. Jesus carried, I'm thinking of a weightlifter. How strong was Jesus in spirit that he could take the sin of the world? All the sin in the past, and all the sin up until our time, and all the sin that you and I will commit, and every person that ever lives will commit, he can take that and carry that away out into a place in the wilderness that is not inhabited. That's where the scapegoat goes. An uninhabited land. Never to be seen again. Psalm 103.12. Oh, here we go. Here's the, here's the scripture. Listen to this. The NIV has verse 21. Confess over the scapegoat all the wickedness and all the rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Verse 22, and the goat shall bear upon him all the iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let, uh, let go the goat in the wilderness. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. That's the scapegoat. Isaiah 43:25 I even I am him, him that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will remember not your sins anymore that's the scapegoat gone 
Now, I want to show you something in this verse. I like these little things that the Lord puts in there. Verse 21. Who's taking this scapegoat out of the camp? Read the verse, tell me. Who does it say? A suitable man. That's not the the, uh, King James, is it? What's it say? A fit man. A fit man, suitable man is a good translation. You know what that word means? A timely person. A person that's ready. Oh, I think I'll go done, you know, take care of the scapegoat when I get done. I'm going to know to go to church, you know. I don't have to be on time. No. This man had the privilege of taking this scapegoat out because he was timely and ready. See, so there are certain privileges and certain things that you will get in God because you are ready. That maybe someone else, you know, will not. Okay, let's go, let's continue on. Another thing, I just want to mention this. Even though the Israelites had to do all these sacrifices throughout the year, still God had, had instituted this here in, in chapter 16 as the annual day atonement for uh, all those um, sins, the unknown sins of the people. So God was basically covering all the, the angles, so to speak, or every base, however you want to say it, to make sure that there can be some relationship there with, with him, with the holy God. Okay, let's move on to chapter 17. I need a volunteer to read again. Any volunteers? Okay, next week we're going to have to move up a little closer. Or I'll bring this back, one or the other. Go ahead, Jim. One through five. It was not the ceremonial sacrifices here at all. This has nothing to do with the ceremonial sacrifices. This is dealing with food, you know, like food that you eat, food for the people. And so the Lord uh, gives them instructions in verse 3 and 4 that if they would slaughter any animals, that they had to bring them to the door of the tabernacle and, and make an offering, then they would just take, take the meat home. <laughs> the Lord does things that sometimes don't make sense. Now, here it's not so bad, them doing that. But whenever they go into the promised land in Joshua's time, remember, they still have to to do these same things. When they, when they go into um, the land of Cana, and you know they go through Jericho and Ai, and it says that they, they defeated 31 kings. Now, 31 kings is not just a small area. See, in Leviticus and Numbers, they were a close-knit community. They were all in the same proximity, same area. But when they're going to go into Joshua's time, they're going to be spread out in the land. And God tells them this ahead of time. He says, listen, if you're going to kill animals for food, you need to bring them to the door of the tabernacle. Well, I'm telling you what, if you're living 10, 15, 20 miles away, and I believe that they were spread out even further than that, 
that could pose a little bit of an inconvenience. Why would God do such a thing? Just let them, you know. Let me ask you this question. When the Israelites were in the land of Egypt under Pharaoh, were they serving God? No, they weren't serving God. Were they idolaters? Yes, they were idolaters. Maybe you didn't know that. Ezekiel 20. Now stay with me here. I'll bring this to a head real quick. Ezekiel 20, uh, verse 6. In the day that I lifted up mine hand unto them to bring them forth of the land of Egypt. Now God's recounting what took place. Into a land that I had espied for them flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all, all lands. Then said I unto them, Cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. So they were involved with idol worship, just like the Egyptians. And they were worse because they should have known better. I am the Lord God, but they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me and cast away their idols. So, so they were idolaters back then. And you know when they went out into the wilderness that they, they constructed the golden calf. They were idolaters then. And God knew in the history later on, not history past, but history in future, that again, they would always have this temptation toward idolatry. Now, whenever they deciphered the hieroglyphics in Egypt, they found out that the Egyptians had more than 2,000 gods. They served animals, many, many, many different types of animals. They served inanimate objects, objects the sun, the moon, and other things in nature. To over 2,000. Do you think God didn't know that? The other people in the land were idolaters. They even caused a sacrifice of their children to the god Moloch. So God says, whenever you kill meat, you kill an animal, you bring it to the tabernacle. Because whenever these other nations would kill animals... They would actually have uh, altars, like the ones we read about in, in the Bible of Baal. They would take the meat and sacrifice it to their God. They would leave it there for a little while, and then they would take it to their home. They would sell it, probably sell it off, and take it home. Take it home. And God is placing boundaries or safeguards up so that the people will not be tempted to do the exact same thing because now they're going to have to cart this meat before the tabernacle and sit it there in acknowledgement that the God of Israel is the true God. And I am not sacrificing this to the gods of Egypt or any of these other nations that are around. James says this in Acts, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols... 
and from blood and from things strangled. That's why he said that, because they were living in an area where they did that. They sacrificed to the gods. And they would, they would put the meat there, as I said. It would be there for a little while. Then they would take it to the meat market, and everybody could go to the meat market and buy this meat sacrificed to idols. So he says that when you go, make sure that you're not buying, if you, if you know, if you can find out. Don't go buying meat at, at, at the, uh, the temple or wherever they're selling it because it's been offered to idols. How many times have we as Christians ate things that were sacrificed to idols? I'm not talking about eating things physically. Paul says this uh, in chapter 10 of Corinthians. What say I then, that the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye sh these should have fellowship with devils or with idols. Now look in Leviticus 17, a couple more verses, then we're going to close. Verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it uh, to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that make an uh, maketh an atonement for the soul. Verse 13. And whosoever, uh, excuse me, and whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten, he shall pour out the blood thereof and cover it with dust. See, the heathen, what they would do was they would go hunting, they would kill the animal, and because they probably had some god of the hunt, you know, that their, their uh, pagan god helped them to kill, the, to, to kill this animal for food, and so they would take it, slice, slice their neck or whatever, and they would pour out the blood right there as a sacrifice to their god. God says to the Israelites, listen, I know what the, the pagan people do, and when you go hunting into the field, and you pour the blood out, because the blood is precious, because the blood of the animal is, is that which I will allow to cover your sins, Whenever you pour the blood out when you're hunting, you cover it with dust. Because he's going to show that there's a difference now between the people of God and the, the uh, heathen nations that surround Israel. You put, you put dust or dirt on it. Don't leave it just sit there because it's precious. It's, it's, it's what I'm going to use to cover your sin. Verse 7, and then we'll close. Chapter 17 still. And they shall no more offer their sacrifice unto devils, after whom they have gone a-whoring. I looked up the word devils there, and the word means shaggy he-goats. See, it's not devils per se like we would think, although that they're involved in this. But see, they were into goat worship. Doesn't that seem kind of strange? Do you know there's goat worship today? Before I came, I just did a little search on the internet. Curiosity. Now, I'm not telling you, don't, you don't need to do this. But I, I got a video clip of some place in Asia where the people were there worshiping goats. 
They showed them and they showed the goats. And then I looked and there was about 11, 10, 11 hits on uh, YouTube of people going through this thing of worshiping goats. This, this stuff still exists, you know. And he says to them that they no more shall offer unto shaggy goats. See, everything God's doing here is to put a boundary here between them and the temptation of doing what the uh, heathen nations around them were doing. I'll read this from the NIV. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and for the generations to come. So, so even though he told them to bring this meat where he told them, it was for their benefit. Even though they had to haul it, I don't know how far, and they probably thought, boy, why do this when we could just, you know, do it right in our homes? God's a God of inconvenience. Well, no, he's pretty smart. He knows what he's doing, and he knows the heart of man, and he knows that, that the heart of man will reach out. Even the heart of the people of God will reach out to touch idolatry. And that thing exists today, as I said, in, in, for unbelievers. And I believe the Lord wants to you know, warn us, too, that in our hearts we are not to reach out toward idolatry. And believe me, it's out there. Anything we, we can place anything before God. So I hope that that um, chapter 17 was a help to you. I don't even know if you've read it before. But uh, at first when I read it, I thought it was dealing with this, the sacrifices, but it wasn't. It was dealing with something different. Okay, we'll stop there and see you next week. Rivers of living.